All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. And let's just recall where we're at in Mark's Gospel. We've just started the second part of his Gospel, where the focus is no longer on exactly who is Jesus. He's the Messiah. We learned that in part one. But what kind of Messiah is he, and what does that mean? And in our last recording, we had that glimpse of Jesus' glory with the transfiguration moment where Jesus is in in all his glory appeared to Peter, James, and John, along with Elijah and Moses. Uh, They came down from the mountain and they found the other disciples unable to cast out a demon. Jesus cast the demon out, told his disciples about the importance of prayer. What we get here is another prediction of Jesus' death. And this keeps popping up here, that this is part of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. His Messiahship involves self-giving love, self-sacrificial death. And so now we get another prediction of his death and then interchanges with with his disciples in the shadow of that prediction. Here's the way it plays out, verse 30. And from there, from that last event, whatever house they were staying in, wherever they were at, at the foot of the mountain, whatever mountain that was at. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know about it. So they're traveling once again throughout Galilee, going from place to place. But notice it specifies, and he didn't want anyone to know about it. He's trying to move around, it seems, and not attract huge crowds. He's trying to move about so that he can uh, kind of keep on the down low and, and kind of stay out of the spotlight. Why does he do that? Why does he not want anyone to find out about it? Well, look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples. This is, again, a major uh, theme in the second half of Mark's gospel, how he spends more time with the 12, and he really wants to teach them and ground them and make sure they're ready for the handoff when, when the time comes for him to die, be crucified, and then eventually ascend, and they need to carry the mission forward. So he's spending more time teaching his disciples privately. So he was teaching his disciples, and he was telling them, and here we get the prediction of his death. The Son of Man is to be handed over to men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And so we get this other, another prediction of his death. A couple things to notice. Notice he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a title of glory. In fact, he used it in his first large prediction of his death uh, to describe that he will be vindicated and the Son of Man will come and reign. It derives from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man as a comes up to the throne of God and is given dominion over all the nations of the earth. It's the title of glory. And so, yes, there is glory that goes with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John, they got glimpses of that glory at the transfiguration. But even though he's the glorious son of man, he is going to be handed over to men and they will kill him. And so those two things have to be held together for the disciples. They've got to get this figured out. And then after he's killed, he will rise three days later. 
Well, they didn't understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. And so they still aren't getting it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit their categories. This is not what they expected for the Son of Man, the Messiah. This is not what they expected about a resurrection. That doesn't make sense. None of this is, uh, they don't have any preconceived notions of this. And so they're not, they're struggling to make it fit into their theological frame of reference. And they're afraid to ask him. My guess is they're afraid to ask him because every time they ask him, he keeps saying, are you so dull? Don't you get it? And they're, they just they wish they could figure it out, but they're struggling. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. So they've been traveling throughout Galilee. They come back to their home base, the town of Capernaum. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? And so as they're out traveling about, you know, he's telling them and teaching about his crucifixion. They're having some other conversation and he wants to know what they were discussing as they were traveling. But verse 34, they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another, which of them was the greatest. Uh, And so they are traveling along and then they begin to have this this little debate amongst themselves about who's the greatest, who's better, who's the the best leader, who's the best apostle, which one of them is the greatest. And the irony and the contrast of that is amazing. Mark has just noted how Jesus has been repeatedly teaching the 12 about his approaching death. And in the shadow of that, here they are arguing about who's the greatest. And greatness, by the world's standards, does just this. It causes us to argue with people, to see people, even people on our own team, as competitors or as barriers or impediments to us getting ahead. Um, They're barriers to be climbed over or fought through so we can get to the top. That's the way greatness by the world standards works. And so they have been discussing this and arguing with each other about it. Um, and they don't want to. They don't want to admit it, and so they keep silent. But even though they keep silent, the fact is, Jesus knew. And so, verse thirty-five, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said to them, "If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all." Here is the path to greatness in Jesus' kingdom. If you want to be great, here's the target: aim to be last. Aim to be a servant. So if you want to be great, that's the target for greatness in Jesus' kingdom, lowering yourself and serving others. That is how Jesus views greatness. Now, by saying this, it's just really important to be clear that Jesus isn't thinking about how little we think of ourselves, that we should think badly of ourselves. That's not Jesus' point. His point is he's interested in how much we think of others. Jesus will describe himself as a servant um, and how he lays down his life for others. That's going to come in a climactic moment in chapter 10. And so being last of all and a servant of all isn't because we think poorly of ourselves. Jesus didn't think poorly of himself. What he's interested in is how much we actually think of others. That real greatness isn't climbing over people to get to the top. It's stepping down to serve and benefit other people. It's pouring ourselves out for other people. Jesus says, if you want to be first, then go to the back of the line. If you want to be great, then serve somebody. This is Jesus' vision of true greatness. Then what Jesus does is he actually gives them a concrete picture of what that might look like 
from something that made sense in their culture. Look at verse 36. He took a child and he placed him among them and taking the child in his arms, he said, and so Jesus takes his little child, makes sure everyone can seize him, picks up the child, uh, holds him. Uh, and we're probably talking about a small child. Um, that's by taking him in his arms. That indicates we're talking small child. And so he takes the small child in his arm and he says to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me doesn't receive me, but him who sent me. Now, why a child? Why is this a concrete picture of self-lowering? and self-giving? Well, because outside of normal family affection, I mean, families, children were loved by their families, right? But outside of normal family affection, children in that world, and really in most societies, have very little social value. They have no money. They have no status. They have no influence, right? They have little ability to contribute to society. They have no social power particularly in that culture. And so this child is a concrete example of those with little or no status in society. These are the ones who are routinely overlooked by the world's standards. When people are trying to be great by the world's standards, children aren't the ones that come to mind. Children, especially small children, are in the category of people that great ones of the world just don't have time for. Their schedules are too full. Their time is too important. Their status is too high to have time for people like little children. But not Jesus and not for Jesus' followers. And notice what he says, like welcoming one child like this, like taking a little child and receiving him, paying attention to him, acknowledging him. Jesus says, that's tantamount to receiving me. Uh, like, if you think I'm great, well, I identify with the lowly. So that's that's like receiving me. And if you receive me, then you're actually receiving God. Well, this then leads presumably to another question. At least we have a snapshot here that it gets uh, pasted up against it. And that question comes from the Apostle John. And his question essentially has to do with, well, yeah, okay, but what about people who are outside our group? Look what happens. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he wasn't following us. And so here, John says, We saw somebody who seems to be a believer. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. So he's he's trusting in the name of Jesus, and apparently his work is effective. We saw him doing this, right? So it sounds like he, he was successful in casting out the demons. So we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him. Why? Because he wasn't part of our group. Like, he wasn't part of our official group. He seems to be trusting in Jesus and seems to be having some success casting out demons in his name, um, but he's not part of our group. So the example of the child above had to do with welcoming people who were of low status by the world standards. This question and this issue that John is bringing up seems to have to do with our attitudes towards people or groups who are are not like on our org chart, right? They're not they're not part of our group. 
Um, they're, they're not directly advancing our cause or helping our ministry succeed or something like that. So John's question shows that the 12 are way too fixated on who's in and who's out in their definition of greatness. If they're going to be great, they should be in our group. If they're going to be able to, you know, use your name in a powerful way, well, they should be inside of our group. And since they're not, then we, we tried to stop him from doing that. That's the issue. How does Jesus respond to that? Verse 39. But Jesus said, don't hinder him. Don't hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, a legitimate miracle done in Jesus' name means that person is somehow connected to Jesus and they're not going to speak badly about Jesus if they actually legitimately can do a miracle in Jesus' name. Jesus goes on, verse 44, the one who is not against us is for us. If they're not against us, then they're, they're with us. They're for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And so Jesus says, don't hinder them. And once again, Jesus is calling the disciples to get rid of that spirit of competition and be much more open and cooperative with people who aren't even necessarily part of their little inner group, uh, that there's more disciples than just them. Um, that in, in, in our case, right, they may not be part of like our little piece of the Christian pie, but that doesn't mean they're not filled with the spirit of Jesus. Um, and these, this person that John sees and who Jesus refers to here, right, they perform a miracle in my name. They give a cup to you because you're a follower of Jesus. In other words, they are, they are themselves invested in the work of Jesus. They are connected to the name of Jesus. They value followers of Jesus and they give a cup of cold water to you. And so they're not going to learn, they're not going to lose their reward. Uh, they're sympathetic to, supportive of, and even invested in the work and the mission and the ministry of Jesus. And what Jesus is essentially saying to the disciples and to us by extension is he's calling them to be much more welcoming and, and open to believers and servants of Christ beyond those who are part of their own little group, to have a more open and welcoming spirit um, to people who who follow Jesus, but who may not be part of their group. Jesus goes on in verse 42 and says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's better for him if a heavy millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea. Little ones here probably doesn't refer to kids. It more likely refers to believers who are from that lowly, unimportant place in the world. That's the idea. Like little ones means small, unimportant, insignificant. That's the idea here. Notice these are little ones who believe in him. These are followers of Jesus who seem insignificant, seem unimportant. They're just simple, ordinary people trying to follow and serve Jesus. They don't have much status. They, they aren't, you know, they don't have, in our idea, tons of theological education. They're just a simple follower of Jesus. And whoever, because of their pride, their bickering, or in some other negative way, causes someone like that to sin, Jesus says it's better for that person to put a big old millstone around his neck and be thrown into the sea. 
Like you need to be aware of the impact you're having on the people around you. That's Jesus' point. Um, And so in the context of both these stories, the issue has to do with the disciples and their, their bickering about greatness, their misunderstanding of what greatness really is. They're preventing someone who's trying to serve Jesus because they're not part of their group. And in this context of teaching about the seriousness of causing other people to stumble, Jesus adds a series of statements that significantly challenges the seriousness with which we ought to take our own faithfulness to Jesus and the ultimate reward we're looking for. Look what he says, verse 43. He says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having your two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire. So if your hand causes you to stumble, right? Like if it's going to cause you to sin, cut it off. Now, this is hyperbole. Uh, it is emphasizing something, right? Exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. But it's restating, like, look... Don't be so concerned about people out there. Be more concerned about your own faithfulness. Be more concerned about the ultimate destiny of your life. Jesus goes on, verse 45, and says, And if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into hell. And again, if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm doesn't die and the fire is not extinguished. And so all three of these statements here emphasize the seriousness with with which we ought to take our own faithfulness and obedience to Jesus and emphasizes you got to pay attention to the ultimate destiny you're heading to. Like, sin is an impediment to eternal life. And so your faithfulness to Jesus is the most important thing. Now, obviously, in the immediate context of the stories told here, this has to do with the bickering and the pride of and the desire for honor and greatness amongst the, the twelve. But the principle goes way beyond that. The principle is this, if your hand, foot, or eye is bringing about your ruin as a follower of Jesus, then you ought to be willing to eliminate it. In other words, whatever, uh, do whatever it takes to get rid of something in your life that's leading you away from Jesus and destroying your faithfulness to him. No matter how hard it is, no, how, no matter how painful it might be, eliminate it. That's the point of this. these examples. They're hyperbole, they're exaggeration, but the point is, we need to be hard on ourselves like this and challenging ourselves and critiquing ourselves. And often, when we are hard on ourselves like this, we're way more gentle and gracious in dealing with others like Jesus calls us to above. Uh, we're way more gracious towards others because we're more and more aware of how much we need grace as well. So to put this in context then, what Jesus is really getting at is this. Instead of worrying about who's greater or not, instead of worrying about who's going to be ranked the highest or not, instead of focusing on who's in or who's out, right? To be truly great in God's eyes, concern yourself with being as obedient and faithful to Jesus as possible. That's Jesus' point. Then Jesus wraps this all up with a series of statements, but what he means is not totally clear, just to be honest. Verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. 
Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we get a series of statements, um, but it's not totally clear. We get the point of connection. Notice, everyone will be salted with fire. And he has mentioned several times in the statements about, you know, your hand, your foot, and your eye, about entering into hell, about, um, you know, unquenchable fire there in verse 44. So the connection is clear with the preceding fire. But what does he mean by everyone will be salted with fire? And the fact is, is scholars just aren't sure. And that's obvious by the number of suggestions that have been given for this. And so we just really don't know what he means by everyone will be salted with fire. Um, that's a strange imagery, and it's just not clear what he has in mind. But then he plays off of salt and attaches a statement to playing off of salt, uh, a statement that we know in the other Gospels from other contexts. And here's what he says. He says, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? And so we know that statement. Um, from like the Sermon on the Mount and in other contexts. And the point is, is about losing your saltiness means losing uh, the qualities that sets you apart uh, and makes you useful, like uh, adding flavor and being a preservative. That's the primary things salt did in the ancient world. It was a preservative and added flavor. So Jesus is challenging the 12 to make sure they're, they're paying attention to not losing those qualities that set them apart and make them actually valuable and useful. And then he ends it by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, salt in yourselves is probably actually better salt among yourselves because of the follow-up line that explains it. Have peace among yourselves, right? Be at peace with one another. Don't, don't be bickering. Don't be competing. Don't be arguing. Don't be fighting about who's uh, the the greatest, that is not a good quality, right? Have salt among yourselves. Uh, and so all of this stuff is playing off of this idea of salt. And what he's really calling the disciples to is uh, part of being salty is living in shalom, living in peace with one another, being in harmony with one another as the followers of Jesus. And this whole section really paints a fresh picture of true greatness. Um, it begins with Jesus telling how he's going to go to the cross. And ultimately, that's the pattern of true greatness. Uh, true greatness in the way of Jesus is self-sacrifice rather than self-promotion. It's self-lowering rather than self-exalting. To be truly great in Jesus' eyes means that we'll be more interested in advancing Jesus' name than advancing our own name. Uh, true greatness means we'll be more interested in advancing Jesus' name than the name of our own church or our own group. Or we're more concerned that the name of Jesus is going forward. True greatness means that we'll lower ourselves to serve and care for people of all types, wherever they come from. The, the high and mighty to the lowest and forgotten, we will love them and serve them in Jesus' name. That's true greatness, is to practice self-lowering, self-giving love like Jesus did when he went to the cross. 
Hey there, just wanted to say thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary on the New Testament and to remind you that this is made possible for free because of the generosity of people all around the world. And so I want to say thank you to those of you who support the listener's commentary and invite the others of you, if you've been impacted by this and maybe the Lord is working in on your heart and stirring you up, to become a ministry partner with the listener's commentary by setting up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation. Uh, there is a link down in the notes below, or you can just go to thelistenerscommentary.com and you can click the Give button right there and set up a, a one-time or recurring monthly donation. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission uh, that provides some financial oversight to this ministry. And so if you click that button, it'll take you to my donation portal through their website. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it.